In the words of Public Enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. Element Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this this is what's good. Happy New Year, everybody! I'm recording this on the third of January, 2019. No 18, no more, boy. Except one, except one more thing I actually have to do that as pertains to 2018. But we'll get to that later. Hope everybody is well. Hope everybody's had a good week. Hope everybody had a good holidays, as I said last episode, and also Happy New Year as well. Um, I, I did. I, it was right for me. It was right. It was calm. You know, did some drink, did some this, did some this. You know, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Formalities. If you want to hit up the show, any opinions you want to give, if you want to shout at me, if you want to get angry. <laughs> nah, none, none of you. None of you angry at me. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> but if you want to help me, hit me up in any way. Got the email, fifth element, the fifth element pub, uh, Gmail, fifth element UK, Twitter, chitchat personally, chitchat twenty two on Instagram, and also the Facebook page as well. All of which will be on the description of every episode. Let's get into the show. So, if you listened to last episode, I didn't do a sports section because I don't like forcing topics, and if I don't have anything to say about a certain topic, then I won't do the topic basically and I feel like that just makes life easier for me instead of for- forcing something and this poor quality I'm all about quan- quality over quantity when it comes to me so that is my that's my philosophy when it comes to creating content and writing anything and base just any form of life quality over quantity facts so I say I didn't have a sports uh, topic last time but I do now and it's actually something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and I've just literally thought about it because I saw a video the other day about it. Well, well, as it pertains to the subject, and I was just, oh yeah, that pisses me off. Let me talk about it. <laughs> so, punditry is interesting. You know, sports punditry is interesting to me because obviously it's people that get paid to talk, you know, talk about the sport whatever sport they're talking about and you know look at it most of the time subjectively and you know some sometimes it sometimes it's good sometimes it's trash I think I think people innately know you know if people are biased or you know stuff like that and sometimes that is the case but I was uh, there are some there's some sometimes I just can't be bothered with it you know, I can't watch a coverage of something and take take anything the pundits say as gospel. You know, I can't. It's hard to do sometimes. So I think it was the I think it was the menu match like last week or something or yeah, sometime last week I guess the Boxing Day games I guess, and it was like uh, Roy Keane and Gary Neville talking about obviously Man United because they're Man United legends and you have to get Man United legends to talk about Man United because, you know, who who else cares <laughs> other than Man United, former Man United players? And, you know, we all know Roy Keane, we all know uh, who Gary, uh, Gary Neville know they are. You know, they're opinionated and all this yada, 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 fine. Yeah, they're, they are good pundits in some form or fashion. But, but, this is my problem with pundits and specifically old pundits old just, just people especially former players of whatever sport so um basketball for sure for me Charles Barkley I I do not care whatever he says I just don't care he's the mo- he has the most irrelevant opinions in my view in terms of talking about basketball because he has this lens 
he looks at he looks at basketball through this lens and to this you know Roy Keane and Gary Neville Gary Neville probably less so but Roy Keane for sure him and Barkley have this lens of looking at their sport from a my day was better lens basically and by that I just well says what it says on tin they think their era was better in every way you know and their mindset as a play as players was so much better the game was so much better you know the grass is always green on my side it's 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 bollocks sometimes it really is and you know I get it I I really do get it sometimes you watch basketball game and you just wish okay that foul was stupid and yes we all know that wouldn't happen in the 90s everyone would fight and poke each other's eyes out and take each other's knees out where yeah we get it <clears throat> We get it that, you know, every sport back in the day was a bit more physical, was, you know, it was a bit more rugged, not as polished as today. We get it. And, you know, sometimes we do see things in our our respective sports that we watch and we're just like, that's just garbage. That's that's really, it's just garbage to watch. Like, nobody wants this. You know, F1 fans are the worst sometimes because they are just complete luddites in every way like every every new thing that ha- that comes through people hate you know what i mean but then but then they get used to it they're like they're like a um <clears throat> they're they're like 5 year olds some sometimes where they just like see something new and you're like no i hate it oh let's go back to the old days i want the center back why isn't he alive now it's 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 so childish sometimes and you know pundits do the exact same thing with their sports um, so as it pertains to Roy Keane and Gary Neville, they were talking about Man United, and I think they were talking about Jesse Lingard, who has a, apparently has a clothing line. Don't correct, don't don't correct me on, uh, don't correct me, <laughs> correct me on this if I'm wrong, because uh, I'm I haven't done the proper research to be completely honest. I just saw the video and it clicked my clicked my mind into this particular particular topic. But yeah, someone one of the menu players had a cl- has a clothing line apparently, and you know they were talking about, you know, they didn't say this obviously, but it was, it was basically like you know back in my day we just played for the team, and Gary Neville was like, you know, I'm fine with you. And this is this is why Gary Neville in in the sense of the old the the old player that um is now a pundit. He's one of the better ones because he talks because you know he can he can empathize with what players are doing now and how you know football is evolving how players are evolving people like Charles Barkley and Roy Keane they clearly haven't got that memo yet and they don't care they don't care they get paid to talk like they're just gonna talk they're just gonna talk their shit and get paid and go home it doesn't matter to them they can talk wherever they like but Gary Neville actually makes an effort and uh, and other other former players as well usually it's the ones that uh, are managers uh, uh, that have had experience in managing which is quite interesting but anyway so yeah Gary Neville was like you know it's cool that you guys have the you know extracurricular stuff clothing line whatever you want to do right understandable but don't do it before like the most important match of the year and I was like okay good good point good point and then Roy Keane was just like you know just again paraphrasing um you know just or just be a just be a team player basically this this team player dynamic really irks me sometimes because it is kind of toxic in a way and you see this as a problem with NFL as well especially where you know so um so college football um some they uh, every after after every season they have the they have this thing called the bowl season where it's just like one more game and basically it's just a sponsor uh, a sponsored game basically where like uh, two two teams are on a neutral field and uh, it's sponsored by some random brand, American brand, and uh, yeah, th- and then they just play the game, and that's their last game of the season. And in that case, sometimes for players that want to go pro, instead of doing the bowl game, they actually opt out and and basically just cut off their football college football career at that moment, and they don't go to the bowl game. Now you know there is many many pundits in American in in America where they're like, oh they're not they're not team players. You should do it for the team. No 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 no. Bun your health stuff like this. And I'm just like, think about it. They these these people any any sport. This is any sport now. I'm going. I'm broadening the scope again. Any sport where their body is 
it's 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 their money. That's them. That's what makes them money. That's what sport is. They are in in a, in, a, in a business sense. They are making money off their brand, off their own body, off their own backs, their own skin, their own muscle, everything. That is what how they make their money. Okay. So when you're telling someone from a college perspective, back to college football, when you're asking them to do this bowl game that has no meaning, because that's what bowl games are, they're neutral field, there's basically no meaning, unless you're in the top two uh, top two games where actually you go on to the national championship. But the rest of them, it's kind of irrelevant. It really is kind of irrelevant. So if you're, you're asking a player to you know, risk his body just one more time, one more time, and what if he gets life-threatening injury? Or what if he gets a career-ending injury? You lot are going to move on with your lives, aren't you? Exactly, you're going to move on with your lives. And it comes back to the same with football, with basketball, with any sport. Again, it is great that, you know, sportsmen and women can not just sponsor themselves, like, you know, tennis players do and stuff like that, but they can also do extracurricular stuff that is outside their paradigm. You know, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not most of the time, I'm not really a fan of <laughs> uh, sports people rapping, but sometimes it, sometimes it's good, but we're not talking about that anyway. But, you know, the fact that they can do it and make money off it is a good thing. Clothing line, go for it, bro. Go for it, my guy. It's cool. It's fine. As long as you, and as long as you do the sport that you're doing, then sure. And I get what Gary Neville was talking about. You know, it's it was an important game, whatever the game was. I totally forgot to be fair. And you know, I get that. I get that piece of punditry. But to say to to say to someone that you should be just just do just 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 stay in your lane and do football or do whatever sport, and and then when you retire, you're you're left to your own devices. That's rubbish. That's utter rubbish. Just because you guys weren't smart enough to do that back in the day doesn't mean that they should do it as well. That is completely short-sighted. If you had the opportunity, if someone told you uh, you're 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 one of the best, you're the one of the best uh, uh, people in your in your in your in your in your field, right? <clears throat> how about doing a uh, how about doing a clothing line like a fitness clothing line because you know you're you're. You're one of the fittest people in the game, you know. You should do a fitness, sir. You should do a fitness thing. Like, you should sponsor this. You should invest in this. Invest. Business. Da 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 da. You should do all this if you really wanted to, okay? And if they can, they and if they want to do it, and if they have expertise in it, go for it. Go for it. I, I really don't understand. And there's a real. Is my dog here? Oh, hello, dog. Um, <laughs> my door open to scare the shit out of me. Um, there seems to be a real disconnect between old, older pl- former players of a certain sport and you know people and people in their sport now, sportsmen and women in their sport now. Yeah, it's other than like maybe athletics. You know, they most most sports have obviously grown exponentially in terms of you know, uh, uh, I guess players be and sportsmen and women being. Um, I guess more empowered to do what they want outside of the sport you know sport is something that you can't do all the time you know some of these people retire you know in their late 20s 30s maybe even 40s and if you're a tart snooker player 50 60 but um you get what I mean it's it's they don't have they don't have much time they have and you know, not everybody can be LeBron James, okay? Not everybody can be Serena Williams, okay? There are going to be people that are pro in their, professional in their sport, but they don't make as much money as the top of the cream of the crop. The cream of the crop people can obviously do what they want because they have the power to do that, and they can, and when they retire, they don't have to, they, they can do whatever they want, but not everybody has that luxury and and for older uh, for ex players to say that oh, do, oh this person should you know focus on the team 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 oh, focus on their craft and you know another example John McEnroe shitting on Nick Kyrgios it's just not on it's just not on and that's a completely different uh, conversation to be honest to, when it comes to Nick Kyrgios but it's still not on and it's to, it's a bit of a toxic um, uh, last point. It's a bit of a toxic. What's the what's the word? Opinion, you know, and 
you know, way of thinking, I guess, where, you know, I saw a video a few months ago of that, of a woman who was doing a, I think a team marathon kind of thing, a team endurance race, and she was basically on the floor crawling to the line. Now, you know, people were looking at it, going, looking at it and quoting quote, quote, tweeting it just uh, on Twitter, going like, um, oh, what sportsmanship, what utter dedication to your craft, da 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 da. I love my writing. I'm not dying over it. Okay, I I love my. I know this. I know it's not the same, but I'm not dying over it. Do you do you get me? You know, if if I was that person, I would just sit where I'm sitting, not crawl because I'm nearly dead. Like it's stupid. It is absolutely stupid to sit to like praise this kind of stuff. It's 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 not really on. Like she, I don't know how she how she is now. But what if she, like, couldn't, can't run anymore or something like that, or can't, you know, literally, like, she can't, she can't do her sport no more because she actually uh, pushed it too, too far. It's, it's a bit silly. It is a bit silly to have that thought now. I get it. Like, you know, it's very, you know, we see sportsmen and women as, you know, superheroes in some aspects, but they are human. And when they're on the ground like that, crawling to the line, I I I'm not really sure that should be applauded. It should be like not not stupidity, but stop, just stop, stop doing that. Stop it, stop it. You know what I mean? It's but I kind of got off point. But um, you know, old pundits piss me off sometimes because they just they they I don't know if they're salty of the fact that there's more money in their respective sports or you know just the fact that they're just grumpy in general, but. It's, if you're going to talk about us, if you're going to talk about young people that are younger than you and are in many cases better than you in your respective sport, it kind of, it it just makes you seem a bit, you know, salty just to like talk about how, how like, oh, oh, back in my day I had a better work ethic. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Do you want a cookie? Like it it doesn't matter anymore. You don't matter anymore. You're only there because you have a name. It literally is, and ugh, it, it it just puts me off watching sport, uh, uh, watching, you know, sports talk and stuff like that. It's just, it's just, it's just wheel spinning, and and it's just grumpy, and it doesn't further any conversation. It's just you rant, ranting. I don't care about you ranting. I don't care. But anyway, let's continue. So let's get into film and TV, and. I saw this article in The Guardian, and I just wanted to give it a little read and uh, uh, just, just just really talk about it in general, really, because I found it quite interesting to read. Uh, I read it once, and I'm going to give a read again. So the title is called uh, The British Film Industry After the Exit. Uh, we're going to throw it all away. So it says, with a production spend about $8 billion a year, businesses have never been better for British screen industries, but all that could change when we leave the EU. So this is obviously another possible outcome in terms of we us leaving the EU and another another in the in the long long list of reasons why we shouldn't go through with all this and just 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 act like it never happened so this is a quote from Ralph Fiennes going in England now there is only the, only the noise of division uh, he said this at the European Cinema Awards last Sunday it sounded like a quote from one of Shakespeare's historical plays but everyone knew what Fiennes was talking about his acceptance speech for his European Achievement Award in which he bemoaned the, quote, distressing and depressing level of the exit discourse, came on like a poignant adieu to Europe from the British film community. Now, this is by Steve Rose, by the way, in The Guardian. A few days later, fellow Brit thespian Andy Serkis produced his own, more direct form of the exit commentary, reviving his conflicted Gollum character from the Lord of the Rings franchise in the guise of Theresa May, fusing with herself over the, over the exit ne- uh, negotiations. I think you've all seen that. It's funny, it's great, it's absolutely legendary. Big up Andy Circus for that. If there are members of the UK cinema community who think the exit is a good thing, they are all impos- but impossible to find. Actors and filmmakers were virtually unanimous in their advocacy of the Remain campaign before the 2016 referendum. They, are, they still are, but now they are at least resigned to the reality of the exit, as many as the industry can be. Uh, this is a quote here by Eric Fellner, co-founder of the Working Title Films, whose production work includes cl- classics as Four Wedding's Funeral, Elizabeth, and Darkest Hour. I still believe, for the interest of our industry, that the remaining 
remaining part of a strong union is the best thing for us both commercially and culturally, and my reasons haven't really changed. We are very lucky in we are very lucky in that we have a strong really strong industry, but we rely on a lot of actors and a lot of talent coming from all over the world, not just the EU. And it just seems a real shame to chuck all that away and have to go back to the days of trying to make it work without exter- external cultural or practical help. It seems ridiculous that we are inflicting a wound on this economic powerhouse, especially at a time when the UK creative industries are delivering a substantial part of our annual earnings, and anything that hampers that is a negative on an economic basis. And this kind of adds on to what I talked about, I think, in my extra thoughts on one episode a few few weeks ago, where you know we we as a commu- as a you you know as the citizens of the UK are going to the cinema more often. I think our numbers are as high as it was back in the 70s. Was it the 70s or the 90s? I don't know. Go back to the episodes and find out if you, if you if you want to get the actual number, but um it's it's just another it's just another thing confirming that this is this is silly. This is un, this is there's no common sense to it and that's, you know, as you guys know, that's my that's my thought of all of this. There is no common sense. Um, but let's continue. Businesses have never been better for British film and television, Felder points out. Since Gordon Brown's introduction of the film tax relief incentives in 2006, Britain has become one of the world's movie centres. Production spend in the UK has doubled since 2009 to a record £1.72 billion on film alone in 2016, and £7.9 billion across all screen industries, including television and gaming. Britain has become a destination of choice for Hollywood, with major studios making long-term commitments to the UK, such as the Star Wars franchise or Marvel's Avengers movies. Pinewood and Shepperton studios are fully booked, with new facilities being built to increase capacity. Britain's visual effects community is arguably the best in the world. Its film and TV products punch above their weight globally. In addition, the arrival of streaming giants Netflix and Amazon have only added to the demand for British skills and services. Some have argued that the relative weakness of the British pound has made the UK even more attractive, as if we were a bre- bre- <laughs> nearly said it there, exit silver lining. Although, as Fiona points out, it goes both ways. Quote, all of, our, all of the revenue we're generating externally is worth less. It's fine for your cost to be low, but your revenue also it is also low. When he goes to Hollywood now, Fellner says the reaction he gets from most Americans is, quote, incredulity. Incredu- 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 Incredulity, 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 incredulity. Why am I am I saying that wrong? Weird. It's a weird word because I know what incredulous is, but I've never heard incredulity. Incredulity. I don't know. Anyway, uh, quote: They cannot get their heads around the fact that nobody knows what could happen, let alone what is happening. They can't understand how we put ourselves in this situation, and they're totally and utterly bemused. Unquote. This is, there is similar reaction on the continent. It's Jeremy Ton- Thomas, another veteran, veteran brilliant, uh, British producer. Quote, you feel a certain chill, he says, citing a recent trip to Lyon. They don't want to sit next to you at dinner parties. Thomas has spent the last 40 years operating as, and think of himself as, a European, he says. His films routinely pull in talents and funding from across the continent and beyond, such as the late Bernardo Bertolucci's Oscar winner The Last Emperor, set in China, or more recently movies such as 2015's Tale of Tales, which was set in Italy, was directed by an Italian Matteo Garon, uh, had a cast of British, American and European actors, a British-Italian crew, and a British special effects team. Quote, this is, sort of bo- this is a sort of borderless business, says Thomas. From the beginning of my career, I've been thinking of the world as one place, and it's been particularly good in terms of co-production treaties to arrange funding and also getting a mixture of skills into films with free movement, free movement of talents and equipment. The free movement of a- uh, aspect of filmmaking is a particular concern for the British industry. Thomas remembers the bad old days before the EU membership did away with so much red tape. There was a there was a transportation equipment you'd have to. You'd have a truck containing maybe 1,000 little pieces of equipment, and every piece would have to be taken out and checked and put back in. It was a rig- rigmarole. It took days to do it. You'd need car nits and work permits for people. Now it's all now it all works in quite a sophisticated way, but maybe that's all over. And I think I'll stop there because I think I've made my point. Uh, well, and if I haven't made my point, let me let me expand on my particular point. So, yeah, this is basically just confirming my 
you know, logic on how nonsensical this all is as it pertains to our politics in the moment. And I think, uh, you know, overall, I, f- I find that quite fascinating how, you know, uh, Thomas considered themselves as a European, quote-unquote, and, you know, how, how you know, f- the free movement in terms of, you know, creating films and the community there there is in the film and TV industry. I think that's why, you know, actors and directors and people like this are usually, most of the time, very liberal when it comes to their politics, because in their own workspace and their own environment, they see firsthand how great it is to have, you know, the ability to travel all around the world with not as much red tape as, you know, business or trade, you know, it's it's not, it's, it's more free. And it makes for a booming business, as we've, as you heard in the, you know, statistics for what's happening in the British film industry right in the film and TV industries right now. It's booming. People going to cinemas, it's booming. The whole economy is booming. And to have all this, you know, and to shut it all down, to literally shut down the border in a, in a sense, not in the literal sense, but, you know, in the, you know, the, the, well, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, shutting it down is stupid. In a, in a, in a word, is is silly to just basically go. You know what? Let's just shut this all down and let's just start again. No, if it isn't broke, don't. F- if it is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I know this is just a film and TV industry. And you know, if you want to make a, an opinion on it is broke in a certain other sector of our economy, then sure, by all means, go for it. But I'm talking about film and TV here because it's the film and TV segment. In terms of film and TV, and in terms of the fact that it's our British TV, film and TV industry, Pinewood, booming, the other one booming, I forgot his name already. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's all silly. It's all silly just to say, all right, let's go back to the Stone Age figuratively i'm being very exaggerative it's stupid but yeah it's 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 just one of it's just one of those things that adds on to the argument that i'm making through this podcast and throughout my own you know opinion of uh, of how, of how everything's going on it's just another it's just another link in the chain and i feel like in many other rec- any other professions and every and many other sectors the, the exact same thoughts general thoughts and pessimism and you know just common sense talking about it they they have the same they have the same opinions and they're coming to the same conclusions this is all silly it is not it's, it's nonsensical our British and our British film and TV industry are gonna pay because people wanted some Polish people out. That's basically what's happening right now. But yeah, uh, so I don't know. I, I want I wanted to do this last, but I feel like I should do it third, only because I don't know how long the to- uh, it's gonna take me to do my top ten albums. Actually, you know what? Let me do my top ten albums, and then I'll do the last one, uh, my life segment last, because I really like it. I'm really fascinated by the life segment uh, this week, uh, and I hope you guys enjoy that as the last one. But let me let me do the top ten albums of 2018, because I'll just, it, it, just not get out of the way, but shove it down you guys' throat, because, because you know, I have to. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you you you. you you can ex- you can expect me to write all this and not tell you about it. Yeah, I'm going to plug it in every possible medium I can. I will inject it into your blood if I could, but that is not possible yet. Wait till Black Mirror does an episode on that. So yeah, let's get into my top ten albums of 2018 because we are only three days into the new year. And actually, general question before I begin, you know, and I think everybody asks this every year, but um. When do you consider, you know, to to stop saying Happy New Year? For me, it's a week, like seven days. I think that's a good, I think that's a good uh, balance. Like uh, after a week, it, we're firmly into it. You know what I mean? It's 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 not about it anymore. No. Yeah, we're we're firmly, excuse me, we're firmly into it. Let's just stop saying Happy New Year after seven days. But anyway, 
digress aside. Um, I digress. So yeah, ten top ten albums of 2018 for me. So I'll start off with Crisis in Elzai, Jericho Jackson, February release last February 2018, and it has unlimited replay factor for me. So that was basically one of the reasons. This was basically the main reason why I put it on number ten. And obviously there was so many albums that could have gone into the list, and this is why. That's basically the main reason why this particular album pushed all the others out, just because it's elite replay factor as a as a as a hip hop album. So it's a one MC, one producer uh, project, as you have guessed. It's basically a match made in hip hop heaven in my mind. You know, Crisis part of the um, it's, it's spelled K H R Y S I S by this, by the way. Crisis, it's boss boss name. Uh, member of the ble- ble- elite beat collective Soul Council. Uh, amazing beats, even better samples. Word of illusion, world of illusion on the first first track uh, actually sets that tone in terms of crisis, and then comes Elzai throughout the whole other rest of the project. He's actually been through a lot of you know rough stuff, you know after after his critically acclaimed Elmatic, which was like a homage to Elmatic, the Nas project. Actually, speaking of, I recently got um I got, I got today um uh, Nas uh, on vinyl, Nas uh, live from the Kennedy Center for, with the. National uh, Symphony Orchestra, so big up Dad for that for copying that for me. Uh, boss, 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 final, absolute boss. But um, that's not what we're talking about. Um, yeah, so he's been uh, Elzai's been a uh, in a battle with depression. Had a Kickstarter project that actually went south, but um, he's actually been finding re- good good form in recent years. Been doing some good features. I've caught him on a couple of features here and there over the years. And Jericho Jackson really just symbolizes his and solidifies his comeback. I think um, in terms of his uh, you know true form and yeah, Elzai as a He's a very underrated artist, a very underrated rapper, and, uh, you know, I'll say that, but people usually put him in his top uh, top five, and they're usually those people that really like those underrated artists, you know, the Elves Eyes, the Royces, the Black Thoughts, you know, those kind of people. Speaking of, Master Ace, and Master Ace, there you go, that's another one. Number nine, Master Ace, Marco Polo, Brooklyn Story. Uh, from 2016, uh, Falling Season. That was uh, Marseille's uh, one of my favorite projects of that year, 2016, and he's just basically come back with another story. Uh, what do I call it? A story album, you know, just basically where the whole album just tells a story, and that's basically what a Brooklyn story is. It is a Brooklyn story. I think it's a, it's about Marco Polo as a Marseille and Marco Polo. So it's another one MC, one producer project. It's a, the story is about Marco Polo going to from Toronto to uh, New York to obviously try and get in the game. And of the hip hop game as a producer, uh, first track Kings is more of a tone setter. It doesn't really have anything to do with the story, but it's a very good tone setter to the actual album itself. Really enjoyed that one. But yeah, uh, continuing on from that, it's just a great story of you know a guy going to New York and you know and the songs really go well with them, and, and the skits as well. Very interesting. They're very uh, they're very well done. And yeah, the whole album is just such such a great listen. It's like a it's like a musical audio book to me. So I I just really enjoy that one. Uh, number eight is Leon Bridges. Good thing. Uh, yeah, just this uh, after after coming home. You know that was a real throwback. Uh, first his debut album, but uh, you know for that one he went to like the deep south and really created like it's like he went to the deep south and created an album there. It's very old old school. But with good thing, it's just a little bit more. It's just a little bit more forward in time, you know. It's more. It's, it's got that soul feel. It still has that, but it's more. It's more sophisticated. It's more. Um. It's more glossy. It's more confident, I guess. Um. It's not. It's not as much crooning as before. There is. There are some croon. Uh, there is some croon. Uh, crooning here. He's. He's also in his crooning bag in this album. But yeah, this whole album just oozes confidence. Uh, he's really evolved, and the instrumentation instrumentation has evolved on this as well. Um, and the energy, there's there's just a little bit more energy to this as well, which I really enjoy. And uh, yeah, it's still a kind of a throwback project in in some sense, but yeah, it's a he managed to make it feel throwback and contemporary at the same time, which I really enjoy. Number seven is Anderson Pax Oxnard. Um, you guys have surely heard this by now. This album by now is absolutely silly. How good this album is. Um, it's so it's so fun to listen to anything that this impact does. It's just such a fresh air, such a breath of fresh air. Uh, this is the most polished uh, album yet, obviously, and obviously that credit has to go to Dr. Dre. Uh, he's a literal perfectionist, you know. And the OCD really shows here. There's no beat, instrumentation, instrument, or vocal out of place here. It's very 
symphonic levels of composing. Uh, as it pertains to Pac, he actually said that this is the album he's been wanting to make all this time, you know, since he actually started making music. This is the album he wanted to make. And you can really feel the effort he put into this. Um, the tracks in themselves are smooth. Many highlights on this. Uh, but yeah, Pac is on form from start to finish here. The features of, uh, as well were very great on the produ- uh, on the feature and the production side. Ninth Wonder Q-Tip hopping on the production side as well. It's... Um, it's much tighter than his uh, the album's predecessor for sure. Uh, six Denzel Curry taboo, yeah, this is a major step up for Denzel. I think this uh, I said at the end of this uh, actually I think it cements him as the best of the SoundCloud generation that we're in right now. Uh, I think he's the best out of all of them right now. It's just absolutely the energy this guy has is like an electric power plant overloading. That's what it's, that's what it seems like to me. It's just the energy this guy comes with is absolutely infectious and it just ha- it's, just, it's a must listen it really is a must listen um the it's split into three acts light gray and dark and you and it gradually obviously logically it gets darker as you keep going um but yes it, it is is pretty bleak in its demeanor overall demeanor but his many personas are very uh, just add variety and i think that was his uh, thing he needed was variety like the energy's cool but you need that variety to really make a great artist out of yourself. And I think he's done that already. So big up Denzel Curry. Number five, top five, Nao, Saturn, my queen, my queen, Nao. Best voice in the game. She's back. Sophomore album. Um, She actually said that, um, you know, she had all this, all her career, you know, all her life to think about how her debut for all we know would actually turn out. And then obviously she had only a year to do Saturn. And that's usually sometimes why sophomore albums actually, like, you know, are less quality, you know. The debut album is usually that album where, like, you know, I've been planning this my whole life, you know what I mean, stuff like that. But then when the sophomore one comes in, you have significantly less time to think about it. But um, you usually have that sophomore slump, but I don't think Nao did for this. Uh, Kicks off with another lifetime, that song gives me chills, as I said in the top 20 songs. And the logic of the, well, the reason why it's called Saturn is about the Saturn return, the astrological theory, I guess, story, whatever you want to call it. Every twenty, every 27 to 29 years, Saturn returns to the sign it was in when you were born, a cycle called the Saturn, a Saturn return. That's why it's called Saturn. So basically the whole album is about her Saturn return and it's very spiritual. She talks about um, personal growth, living, learning from mistakes, romantic subtext as well. So, and, you know, she has that angelic voice, as I keep saying, as I keep nailing to your heads until you listen to Neo, and you consider her one of the best. And, uh, obviously, that neo-soul R&B funk production as well uh, comes through as well, so it's an amazing album. Number four, real underrated project here, Buddy, Harlan, and Alondra. Absolutely love this album. So clean, so, so clean, and straight-up fun. Uh, didn't hear of Buddy until this album actually dropped, you know? I, I was just seeing... Uh, Artists like Rhapsody and uh, and uh, other artists um, sharing this particular album. And I was like, oh, if they like it, I'll give it a go. Why not? Uh, so I gave you a listen. And uh, he actually originates from Compton, hip-hop hotbed, as we know. And he spends the whole album giving us basically a whistle-stop tour through his life. Um, so and uh, But yeah, just most of the song titles actually say, do, do what they say on the tin. Real life shit is him talking about some real life shit. Trouble on Central. Just talking about some trouble on Central. It's quite fun. And uh, and Black, <laughs> Black. It, yeah, he says it. To, to, they they say um him and ASAP Ferg. Uh, they actually say Black on the track. Black on the track. Um, two hundred and thirty-two times. Yeah. So it is a very very black song. <laughs> Literally. So uh, yeah, that's that's literally what you get when it comes to Buddy. And uh, but the reason why I love this album so much is, this, regardless of the subject matter, he really just moulds into it. And he sings on stuff like Blue and it, the, the G-Funk come just bursts out into your face. It's so, it's so chameleon from a um, singing, rapping perspective, but also a production's perspective. You know, some of the, some of it sounds trap, some of it sounds very g-funk like it's just so if you listen to the album you will i guarantee you'll find one song that you cannot turn off that you have to repeat and yeah the whole album is just utter utter fun and just super clean 
number three, top three now. Akira Naru, Blackest Joy, another underrated artist here. Um, and as some of you know, I saw Miss Orin Hill earlier, earlier in December. And if you know Miss Hill, you obviously know what she's about. The reason why I'm saying this is um, just, well, continue. Take that and imagine Miss Hill had a university named after her, right? Miss Lauren Hill University. And uh, Akira Naru went to this fictional university and took a course called Embracing Blackness. The reason why I'm creating this imagery is because from listening to this album, I get heavy, heavy Lauren Hill vibes. But more directed to the black experience and loving the skin you're in. And that's obviously relatability points if you actually have the high melanin that we're talking about here. Uh, the album is just super beautiful. Uh, she's a very elite lyricist. Her voice is very commanding. It's, it's, it's more, it's more deep. It's deeper than most fem, uh, female, uh, female uh, rappers and lyricists. It's very, um, yeah, uh, yeah. It's deep and um, it's very, but it's very commanding, and it orders you to listen. Um, there's some great choir support uh, sprinkled throughout this album that just adds on to this, uh, you know, the blackness, the un- unapologetic blackness that this album exudes. Uh, there's great significant uh, references to uh, black figures such as Serena Williams, James Baldwin, to name a couple. Hip hop beats here. There's African instrumentation here. There's obviously gospel, like I said before. It has it all. It has all corners of black music, and it's just absolutely special. And the fact that you guys have probably never heard their name till now, and it's also a great feminist piece as well. I can't can't uh, take away from that as well. That's a great feminist piece as well. But um, the fact that you guys have never heard their name until I just said it right now uh, makes it a lot more special for me, personally. Uh, number two, Murr's Strange Journey into the Unimaginable. Yeah, this album is... Wow, it's a, it's, it's a real open book, uh, literally. So he, has literally, he literally tells you all the demons he has been fighting through, all the trials and tribulations that he's gone through in the past, few, in the past year or so, past years anyway. Divorce, custody battle, money trouble... Uh, yeah, she found love, a momentary high, only to have a stillborn baby with his fiance. Add on all the effects of that, and uh, including not wanting to live on the song Melancholy. You would think that this song's very, uh, the the album's very bleak, but actually, after the first few tracks, it gets very, I don't know, uh, it, it it's kind of a roller coaster of an album. You know, what I mean, there's a there's a lot of negativity in that stuff like Me- Melancholy, but there's also some hope in a couple more, and there's a. Superhero Pool Party is an example. It's just super funny. It's just super funny. It makes me smile. So, yeah, it, it, it's funny how he just toes that line from being, you know, borderline suicidal to just, like, super funny. And uh, the fact that Merzer's balanced that and just made it into a very a very interesting album to listen to. It's very emotional, very reflective. And it also has some of the best lines uh, you'll, you'll hear. So, uh, shout out to uh, Michael Seven Summers. Uh... Yeah, Michael Seven Summers, uh, a producer, main producer on that. It's technically another one MC, one producer project. So there you go, another one there. But my number one album of 2018, another one that you guys have never heard. Of, well, yeah, probably you have. You probably have heard of it, probably or heard of him. But I, but I've never, I've, I haven't seen this album on any of the lists. None of them. Uh, so this is Ocean Wisdom, Wizville. Camden's finest, Ocean Wisdom. Um, when I first listened to this, uh, it was actually amongst uh, many other popular releases at the time, so I didn't really respect it the way I should have. I listened to it in the background, you know, I caught some of the stuff, but I was like, yeah, it's alright, it's cool. But then I actually listened to it again, I've, I knew I didn't give it respect it deserved, so I thought I'd give you another listen. And yeah, this is this is so hard to deep listen to. This is so hard, because the... the <laughs> I had I, I I never I've never had to take a break to between songs so often. Um, the the dude's lyric output and the speed he does it in and the actual content of the words, it's just it, it hurts my brain. It hurts my brain of how like fast it can be, how smart it can be. It's 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 one of the best British albums I've heard this decade and probably this century to be fair. It's just absolutely amazing. The skill, the skill, the pen, the mic, the breath control, right? Not even just that. The beats on here are such a perfect blend of 90s and US... uh, 90s US US hip-hop and UK rap. Such a perfect blend. Best of both worlds, of of, of both sides of the pond. And then we get to the features. Method Man, Dizzy, Rodney P, Roots Maneuver, um, 
uh, P Money, I think, is on another track as well. And it's not just the fact that they're on the track; it's the fact that Ocean Wisdom waxes everybody on their track, on their respective track. You know exactly who this album is by because Ocean Wisdom dominates on every single track he has a feature on. Dizzy are le- Dizzy, Roots, Rodney, and Method are legends, okay? But Ocean Wisdom waxed them all on their on on whatever they're featured on, okay? Do not test. <coughs> this has uh, the album has everything a traditional UK-based hip hop fan could possibly want, and as a UK-based hip hop fan like me, this is a benchmark. I told you guys, I told you guys a few on on one of my articles a few a um, few months ago that um, UK hip hop's coming. Oh yeah, it's my interview with Deacon. I told you that UK hip-hop is coming, and this is Exhibit A, Whizville, okay? This is Exhibit A, and that's my Telltale albums, and I actually did it, oh, right on the 45-minute mark, not bad, not bad. Uh, that was, uh, I need a drink, God, <laughs> to be honest, but um, I'll just uh, do this last bit, and then we're gone, we're done for the week. <sighs> so, yeah, so let's talk about life segment, and it's not really about me personally, it's about the world around us, in a way. So... Uh, comedy. There is, there's been like a lot of, you know, opinions as it pertains to comedy and the state of comedy and, you know, the Western world in particular. Um, obviously political correctness is something, is a thing, and sometimes it can be very just silly. You know, it's just like, you know, you, you people getting offended by the smallest of things or by things that don't actually mean it's not that deep, basically. You know what I mean? So a comedy is, like I said last week, it is an art form that is undisputable. That's a fact. A comedy is an art form. OK, let's get that out of the way. And as an art form, comedians have the ability their skill in what they do is that they have the ability to socially push boundaries and you know make you laugh professionally is sounds like a bloody nightmare you know being with your mates is something and you know it's it's easy to make your mates laugh you know what i mean but Making complete strangers laugh, and especially if you're like a person starting out when you're unknown and your name means nothing, it's it's it, from, just from just from what I can imagine, it it seems excruciatingly excruciatingly painful to even attempt to do that to make strangers laugh. That sounds painful. Screw you lot. <laughs> if you laugh at my if you laugh at my uh, during the podcast then good on thank thank you i appreciate that but you know i'm not putting effort into this they do they spend time writing out jokes practicing and they have to do it in front of an audience so actually while i'm talking about this so i'm going to reference a i'm going to reference a, a, a twitter thread that i saw that actually made me think about this a, a lot this week so this is from Roy Wood Jr a special correspondent for the daily show Great comedian, one of my favourites, really enjoy him. Uh, and especially his Instagram, his Instagram stories can be mad funny, it's so great. But anyway, so he was asked, uh, do you feel like comedy is dying? And that's one of the things that people think is like a legit thing. Comedy is dying, okay? This is a perfect response, perfect response by Roy Jr. here. So it's, it's, it's lengthy as well, several tweets, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through it as soon as, as quick as I can. So he says... So he says, if anything is killing comedy right now, it's headliners touring on the same jokes they wrote 10 years ago. Crowds are catching on and assume the new comics do the same. Uh, kills repeat attendance. A lazy comic is by, uh, is far bigger threat to comedy than a politically correct one. Plus, the bigger question is what metric do we measure the death of comedy? Quote, unquote, death. Do we measure it by amount of outrage? Do we measure it by ticket sales and TV opportunities? I think comedy is doing fine in spite of all the outrage. Netflix just dropped 47 comedy specials today. 47. Uh, today being uh, one day ago on the New Year's, obviously. Uh, I'm sure that's at least one. Uh, I'm sure that at least one of those comics is ruffling feathers with their material. Plus, we're returning to a space on TV where comedians are lead on sitcoms again. Said the entertainer, Lil Real Harry, Tone Bell, Jermaine Fowler, Tracy Morgan, Damon Wayans Jr., uh, Kimry Lewis. 
David Allen Greer, and also Shower Marlon Wayans as well. Uh, com- comedy clubs will get a trickle-down benefit. Is that death? I don't know. I don't think comedy is dying. I think they're just a more just there are just more people that don't want to hear certain shit anymore, and they don't and they have a right to complain or blog or walk out on the show. It's just that the comics ego is thrown by this because we think everyone should love us. Lol. Multiple performers are standing under clouds of clouds misconduct, and people are happily buying tickets to see them. People mad at comics for saying a bad thing, but there's also people paying money to see comics that are accused of doing a bad thing. Is that death per se? I don't know where any of this fits in the metric of the death of comedy, but the but it's got to count for something, no? The people who like particular comedy will keep coming. The ones that don't will stop. What's happening right now isn't death, it's free market. Coal is dying, DV rentals are dying, comedy will be fine. Comedy remains the tip of the spear when it comes to challenging the status quo. For every person offended by a quote-unquote joke, they're probably someone willing to pay $20 and two, drink, uh, and two drinks. I don't agree with every joke, but I agree with the performance right to tell them. It affords us all the same freedoms on stage. We can talk outrage, but if we talk in dollars, comedy ain't dead. The foundation is resettling, lol. If anything, this is when it thrives. Now that being said, back to my original point, dot dot dot, it's a disrespect to the craft to perform jokes that are 10, 20 years old verbatim. It's lazy, a politically incorrect comic will piss off 10% of the audience, a lazy comic will dis- disappoint all of them. Now you have an audience that's on the fence about seeing you a third or second time around because they assume you're lazy as your predecessor. That affects attendance, that affects club's bottom line. This is bad for the business. Okay, so talking about that is a very interesting point where, you know, there are comedians that, you know, don't evolve. And it's the same, and, you know, musicians can, musicians have that luxury, you know, of have of having, like, you know, one song or one that one album that they can tour on for the rest of their lives. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, when I went to see Lauryn Hill, people were walking out or they didn't enjoy it. Because it didn't sound like it did when, you know, whenever we put X Factor on, on our, on our phones or, you know, stream it in any, or on vinyl or whatever. She did it, she, she's mixed it, her performance up and changed the way the music sounds every time she tours for the miseducation. But people were so angry about the fact that it sounded different to what the album actually sounds like. And contrast that with comedians, comedians constantly have to give fresh content constantly it's like food they can't give rotten rotten jokes they can't give old food music can music has that timeless feel and you know comedy can do that has that timeless feel in a sense because i can easily watch a chris rock special right now i can watch bigger and blacker right now and when was that 2000 and something you know never scared kill the messenger i can watch all of those right now I can watch Eddie Murphy Raw right now. When was that? The 80s? I can watch that right now. So obviously there's that timeless feel. But obviously when you go for the live experience, you want something different. And I understand that. I haven't been to a comedy club, uh, um, unfortunately. I, I don't know why I haven't, to be fair. I feel I feel, I feel like I should have by now. But uh, anyway, that's, that's, how, that's just how it goes. But... Um, yeah, the fact that comedy isn't dying. Let's be silly. Let's, let's, let's not, that's silly. Let's not be stupid. Let's not be stupid here. But there was one other point that actually he said I'm going to try and find right quick because um, I've been recently, you know, I follow Jonathan Pye, who's a you know comedian and, uh, well, Tom Walker, comedian, and his alter ego, Jonathan Pye, news guy, you know, does the news items and then he actually just goes off on what he wants to talk about. And, he, you know, he's one of those, he's in the... Uh, Ricky Gervais, you know, school of a joke is a joke, and we have the right to tell a joke if you're f- and you know stuff like that. But he's kind of been on this vendetta where he's talked where you know Jonathan Python Walker is talking about you know woke comedy, which is the first time I've ever heard of that. I'm, I'm not a comedian by any sense, but I've never heard of woke comedy or the fuck is woke woke comedy. That's bollocks. I don't know what that is, but anyway, he was uh, he talks about it on a video. Literally, I think it dropped today actually or, or yesterday. So um. If you want to go watch it, go watch it. But um, he was talking. He he talks sometimes like there's a, as if like comedy's dying. 
You know what I mean? And, you know, some of the points he makes is valid. You know, people were talking about the Louis C.K. thing where he was on, he was at a show recently and someone recorded it and all the publishers and all the publications were talking about it and delivering their opinions on it. Oh, we talked about the Parkland kids and, uh, you know, and joking about that. And I was like... It, uh, the reason I didn't find it funny, to, personally, I didn't find them that funny, just because they were just a bit, it was it was dead, it was dead construction of a joke, to be fair, it was literally just like, it was a bit weak, as a, you know, a comedian that's been around, he's been around for what, 20 years, I think, something like that, 20, 30 years as, as comedian Lucy K, I expect you to construct like a better joke than that, like throwing a fat kid in the way, come on man, that's, 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 something, that's a joke I'd make in a pub, like that's a bit... That's whack. That's a whack joke. But obviously people were talking uh, about it as if, you know, it's, um, you know, as if he shouldn't say it. And, you know, I'm off the, I'm off the place where like, you know, again, it is an art form. It is an art form. Okay. If they construct it well, it will, it will be fine. If they do the planning, if they do the practice, it will be fine. And that brings me on to this. So Chris Gethard, he's on a Vox podcast recently, a Vox Media podcast recently, and I'm I'm reading, I'm going to read the transcript of what he was asked um, uh, on the podcast, and I found it mad fascinating. And this is kind of what people were talking about as it pertains to Louis C.K. and it actually makes very, a lot of sense. Um, Chris Gethard, comedian, um, he's a, he had a he had his own show, and recently. Uh, uh, Cancel, got cancelled, and uh, he's actually been. He's actually wrote a, written a new book called Lose Well, and it's kind of like a self help book. If you want to look it up, look it up. Apparently, it's very good. I don't know. I haven't read it, but um, let's get into what he was talking about here as it pertains to um, comedy. So, um, and again, this is very lengthy as well. So I'm just going to try and get it in, uh, get into it as much as I can. So he was asked by Todd Vanderwerf um, on his podcast. You and I are the same age, roughly, and I'm just old enough to remember the 90s comedy scene, which was very, quote, oh, we have to do political incorrectness, we have to tell faux offensive jokes. But I understand there are people who are saying, quote, oh, those are just offensive jokes, are coming from. I'm wondering if you feel similarly, like you can see both sides of that conversation. It's what Chris Gethis says about that, about offensive comedy in general. He says, it's very funny, because there are so many think pieces about comedy right now. I read them just like everybody else does. And it's weird, that, uh, it's weird that comedy somehow culturally represents this bigger picture to people about society. And, you know, sometimes I do think that, personally. Uh, this is me, by the way. Is, you know, sometimes I do think that. But I think we do give comedians too much credit for talking about what they're talking about and assuming that's what society thinks. You know, they're not the pillars of society. They're not politicians. You know what I mean? They're, they're supposed to be the opposite of politicians, you know? So... When they talk, when they give an offensive joke, like, it's, it's not, they're not, <laughs> people may enjoy it, and, you know, there are some people that enjoy it and consider it, I, I don't know, maybe gospel, but, um, you know, it's kind of like, um, what, what's the word, what's, what's the, involuntary thoughts, you know what involuntary thoughts are, you know, when you have something in your thought, in your head, and you're thinking it, and, you know, I want to perform violence on this person right now. But you're not going to do it. You're not going to act upon it. I think that's what people think about people that watch comedy sometimes. Like, when they see a rape joker and, like, oh, he's, he, he's, he's, he's a... People think rape is funny. Let me do it. Like, obviously, not people not that stupid. And I think that's what sometimes... Uh, yeah, but anyway, I lost my train of thought there. But um, anyway, let's continue. Uh, one real problem I have is that I think there's a little bit of double standard amongst comedians. So he goes into com uh, comedians specifically. I do think that comedians sometimes have to, have to say potentially offensive things. I do think that, especially when you're testing out new material. If you want to have teeth and you're trying to make a point, you might w might piss some people off. I know when I was working on my career suicide, it, on career suicide, the name of his uh, special, it made some people very uncomfortable. There were shows where it bombed hard because I didn't have the balance of funny right yet to make people comfortable. You can imagine bombing with material that is personal, uh, that personal, uh, that personal, sorry, is a particular brand of loneliness. Also, if you've watched Career Suicide, you know that at one point I quote someone who said, who, uh, who, someone else who says the N-word in the show. I'm quoting someone else, and I'm citing it as an extremely negative, horrible thing in my life. It doesn't change the fact that I am a white male saying the N-word. I said on HBO, it was terrifying. 
You can imagine it took many took me many 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 tries how to say that in a way that reflected the reasons that I was uh, I was saying it. The values I have. It, it offended people. There were two different times where when I was doing that show off Broadway, people stopped me and yelled at me. One time the audience started booing. Uh, uh started booing someone who was yelling at me and I was the and I defended the audience member who was yelling at me saying, No, we're not going to boo someone who's offended by a white guy saying the N word. You have to be able to offend as a comedian. What would George Carlin's career have been like if he never took a chance on offending? Have you watched Richard Pryor? Some of those, some of that, uh, that feels risky today, and it was 34 years ago. But what comedians often forget is that while we are allowed to offend, audiences are also allowed to get offended. So I'm, I'm, let me say that again because that's my, that's going to be my last point actually. But what comedians often forget is that while people are allowed to offend, audiences are allowed to get offended. Okay, continue. This idea that comedians often have, which is like, quote, you're being too PC. Why does everybody get offended? It's like, because you said something offensive, and that's fine. And your impulse, that comedians that have to have to be able to be truth-tellers, I agree with it. But this idea of, quote, we get to be able to say whatever we want, while I do think it's true, it's very much a double standard to say, but you don't get to react the way you want. Perfect quote right there. Continuing, you have two options. You either stand by that joke and say, quote, I'm willing to offend you and I'm willing to create this dialogue and I'm willing to have this fight. Carlin and Pryor are two examples of people who they did offend, who they did offend and they were willing to go, yeah, I stand by it, come at me. Or if you're trying to say, quote, it wasn't that offensive, you're too PC. You need to, th- you need to, I think, respect your audience more and figure out a way to make that point in a way that lands how you intend it's not on the audience. There's a lot of really big comedians now who say, I'll never play a college again. They're too PC. I don't know. I've played colleges. I think young people are pretty smart. And there there might be some areas where this is a challenge to upgrade your writing. It might just be a challenge to you to round out that joke so it's better. So yeah, we have to be able to say whatever we want. I will defend the free speech of comedians to my death. But don't get mad when people get offended at offensive stuff. It's your choice. Uh, choice. Own it or don't. Tell, don't tell them they're being babies for reacting to something you said. You don't get to have it both ways. Um, and I think I'll stop it there because I think that's pre- pretty much the point I'm trying to make. You know, uh, when people like Jonathan Pye are talking about, you know, audiences and people and, the you know, I get what you're saying about the media, which is, which is a very interesting, you know, part of this. And I haven't really covered. And I feel like I should have, but. Just watch, go watch Jonathan Pye's video because he actually talks about that particular bit. And, you know, in terms of the media, you know, covering Louis C.K. in terms of that, you know, it was a bit silly. It was a bit silly and the opinions were a bit silly. Um, But, you know, people saying, you know, you're two comedians getting uppity, you know, it's kind of it's kind of stupid. Um, And I do understand, again, you know, parallel uh, comparing that to music musicians can write whatever do whatever music they want and you know people can either listen to it or not listen to it you know and that's their choice they can make the choice easily and the artists also have the choice to not make the or or to to either change up their music and make it more applicable or more um more appetizing i guess or they cannot, and they can just stick to their whatever they want to do and not sell, you know. But on the flip side, you know, audiences, comedy audiences, they've paid for the ticket. And, you know, if they don't like it, they don't like it. And it's the same with, you know, sports. The fo- you know, And again, you know, this brings back to the um, Raheem Sterling bit I was talking about. Obviously, that's in the very extreme. That's an extreme, I just want to say. But, you know, if you're a sports fan and you've bought a ticket to see somebody or see a team, or actually not somebody, but see a team, your football team, you have the right to say, boo, you suck, yada, yada, you should pass the ball more, whatever criticism you want to give. Obviously, people get extreme with that. But it's the same thing as it pertains to comedy, and especially stand-up comedy and stand-up specials. They have paid for the ticket. They have the right to boo. They have the right to leave. 
they have the right to say I am offended, all right? And you know, some, some people some people can get desensitized, and that's and that's you know that's that's the negative in some ways, a positive in some ways, you know. Ricky Gervais has his fans. He's one of the biggest comedians in the world. Okay, he, him telling an offensive joke, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of I know why he rides for that rides that wave a lot, um, because he's trying to be the advocate of that. You know, you know, having using his voice as one of the best comedians in the world to advocate the fact that you know, comedy is an art, and he should be they should be allowed to say offensive jokes. And you know, I don't think he's ever said this. Uh, the, the the you know if you're offended then boohoo, but he do, he does like um, talk about that kind of thing where you know um, uh, you know what was it what was it um, uh, him and Pi and other people like that you know they say um, uh, oh no oh yeah a comedian gets battered for telling a joke like come on it's that 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 that's sensitive right there that's a bit sensitive right there you know saying. Oh, the 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 you're why are you so sensitive? Why are you so sensitive about everything? Like comedian told a joke. Whoa, breaking news, you know. And I get it. Again, media, you know, overblowing stuff. And you know, they overblow a lot of things. You know, it's not just comedy. You know, they do it for everything. Sport gets overblown. Music gets overblown. At the end of the day, this is all art. That's what it is. At the end of the day, this is all art. And you know, in in some ways, it is meaningless. But also, in some ways, it is the most important thing that we have. So, wherever you are on this particular spectrum, if you get easily offended, fine. If you don't get easily offended, fine. It's not really... It's it's a wide spec. It, let's say this. I'll finish on this. People's opinions on everything has become much wider simply because our society and our um, ways of living and ways of thinking, it's all expanding, it's all diversifying. So to be a comedian is very hard these days because you have to appeal to a much more diverse audience than, say, back in the day in the 80s. You know, there, 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 are no, there were no gay comedians back in the day, there were no trans comedians back in the day, no Asian, barely any black ones, you know, so it's much more diverse in in our society, more multicultural, so, and a lot more things that piss people off, so, if people get offended, then fine, but keep doing you, but you don't have to take shots at your own audience, don't bite the hand that feeds you in a way, but at the end of the day, it's all an art form, and and I agree with Chris Gethard on the fact that you know they everyone has the right to to say what they want, and him quoting someone saying the N word is kind of an interesting way of going about things. Um, and I kind of and I kind of want to watch it, uh, watch that special just for that, just to see how it works. To be fair, and see if I laugh, and uh, if I ever do, I'll let you know. But yeah, that was a very very long diatribe. I, I admit. Um, but yeah, it's the end of what's good. It's the end of the show. Uh, as always, as I said at the start, if you want to contact me, you know where to contact me. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'll see you next week. Hopefully, you get to um, go back to Thursday. It's been a long, long, long week for me, so um, uh, I had to record this on the Thursday. Oh, actually, on the Thursday and drop it on the next day. Hope you, hope you guys are cool with that. But yeah, that's pretty much been the show from the Fifth Element Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor. This has been what's good. Uh, Have a good weekend, everybody, in the week ahead. Take it easy, and a happy new year. (laughs) 